All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society podcast. I'm Preston Nieves, president of the Wisdom Factory Literary Society, and I'm with Nicholas Flores, Hi. who's our research director. And today we have an interesting topic and a very special guest. We're going to be talking about the 2020 election that's coming up here in the United States is on everyone's minds. I'm sure you've seen the Democratic debates, you know, Bernie Sanders, the 1% of the 2% milk of the 5% of the wealth inequality. Um, I'm sorry if I offended any Bernie supporters. And, you know, we might talk about him in a more positive light later on. I think Bernie is very complex characters. You know, it's kind of just cracking a joke. But with us, we have uh, Dr. Hyun. Um, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, uh, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. It is my honor to be here today. And I'm professor in, in the Department of Political Science at Texas State University. So my major and in, uh, in teaching and research, it is uh, in political communication and media. And uh, my area of research and teaching crosses uh, over political science, journalism and communication. A main uh, field of research is about um, discriminated media effect and ineffective American system that undermines American society. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the, I guess the meat and potatoes of the discussion, um, I, I think we can create some context by, by sort of discussing a couple of things. So Dr. Hyun, what made you pick that area as your field of study like what was it really that interested you and appealed to you about uh you know political communication and and elections you know there's all sorts of different things you know there's foreign policy there's military strategy there's law you know what was it about that that spoke to you and, and really made you feel like you could come up with some innovative research and ideas as you most certainly have well um may uh, many of you guys as a practitioners and scholars and uh, if you look at some phenomena we look at that we have a very uh, much discrepancy across a different subfield and across a different uh, uh, methodological approach. So when I was a student, um, I just realized that there is a big gap uh, between political science and communication, which is a political science, we pay, pay more attention to macro level of approach, such as a group, state, uh, or society. But uh, in our communication studies, they look at the micro level of individuals and see how each individual react, perceive, and understand the world. So thinking about, um, Texans, how they would perceive and react. And Yeehaw. How, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you, I'm from Texas. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can really uh, understand how you as individual will uh, vote for certain candidate, and especially in 2020 election, not understanding what is going on as a you know, text and histories, cultures and politics and society. Mm. Vice versa, if we just you look at the macro level the way it is, you can really understand how you as individual will see the things differently, new information and new ideas and uh, uh, new uh, approaches. We can really understand uh, at the same time. So as a student, I wanted to look at uh, some of the discrepancy 
between micro level of the approach and macro level of approach and how we can understand the whole political communication system with the more generalized mm -hmm. more consistent ideas yeah and I, that was an awesome response because i i think that actually sets us up very well for the first question um because so back in 2016 you know, the, all the pundits were saying, you know, Trump could never win. The political scientists, as he talked about, you know, we're, we're discussing this gap between political science and political communication. Yeah. The political scientists were saying that Trump can't win, that he's too ridiculous, that his plans are not realistic, that he's, he's a racist, you know, like all sorts of different things. And it seemed like a joke. Like, like Trump was a meme, and he kind of still is, but he's a different kind of meme now that he's actually the president. Uh, but he was like, uh, now he's a meme that you can at least take seriously in certain cases. Mm -hmm. Before he was a meme you could not take seriously. Then he ends up winning. Um, so for the first question, so in order to discuss the 2020 election, we cannot avoid... Re revisiting the 2016 election. In 2016, both presidential candidates were historically controversial and unpopular. That's definitely an understatement. Then, uh, what were the differences between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? And also, what made Trump the winner? Uh, so, Dr. Hyun, you know, you're the expert in the room. Let's, let's start with you. Okay, thank you. That is a really excellent question to talk about at this stage of uh, the campaign. And uh, by having a maverick businessman with both successful and controversial record and a politically very seasoned female politician who was a first lady and later having experience as a senator and a sec the secretary of state for the presidential candidate in 2016. We had a very different uh, and more negative campaign with a wide range of scandals and presumptions. Okay, no doubt about that. So regarding the 2016 election, scholars provide a different heuristic interpretation about the uh, unprecedented campaign process and election result. But uh, out of my research, uh, I can provide uh, you know, one possible feasible answer. In political games, uh, political candidates needed to be equipped with multiple qualifications. In 2016 election is actually a great example that uh, social capital, such as trust and reciprocal relationship can be much more important than political capital, such as a political reputation and functional ability that cultivated by political candidates and uh, perceived by voters. So uh, in 2016, according to the national surveys, Donald Trump supporters mentioned that he shared values they care about. And he talks like me and you, not like a politician. He says things that people are thinking, not saying. So he speaks our language, not big political jargon. So these qualities are really connected with the voters, filling in America's deep-rooted craving, whatever that has been missing. According to Michael Moore, for example, it is especially with angry white men from working class. So according to my research, whether it is negative or positive, whether it is exclusive or inclusive, Donald Trump had more 
and stronger social capital than Hillary than Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. So, as a political outsider and businessman, he was more welcomed by average American. I'm sorry, he was welcomed by more welcomed by American average American voters. And、uh, another difference, actually, it made Donald Trump the winner is his winning phrase.、Uh, he wrote <laughs> truthful hyperbole,、uh, which is. Big and huge is always the winner and the answer in his autobiography, and actually it filled repressed Americans' minds with hope, although it might be somewhat distorted American dream. So I believe that these are definitely winning factors for Trump in two thousand sixteen. We're gonna win so much we get tired of winning. Yeah. <laughs> you know what Mexico said? Yeah. Well, guess what? The wall just got ten feet high. The wall just got a hundred feet higher. All right, we're gonna build it all the way. Oh, you But, guys are kidding! I think、like、I'm with the Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But but I I think actually, so I really like the distinction you made between social and political capital because,、mm-hmm. you know, I'm not I'm not even sure I thought of it in those terms before because that distinction is something I think a lot of people are overlooking. You know, you hear. Not only lo- overlooking, but also that there's a, even people who do see it are not connecting the dots between the social aspect and the political aspect,、mm-hmm. because you know you hear a lot of talk about a culture war going on in the United States, and that there 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 have been culture wars before, but there hasn't always been a culture war going on. There's a lot of political elections that happen when when culturally most people are on the same page. It's just politically we're different.、Mm-hmm. Um, You no, know, I, I think you know when you're mentioning what Michael Moore had said about、mm-hmm. angry white working class voters, that there's a certain worldview and a certain community that that Trump represents,、um, and particularly you know when we're getting into especially the last two parts of this question, you know the differences between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and then what made Trump the winner. That I think what it was is that Trump appealed to people who had been forgotten by the political system.、Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you know, you know,、right. like one one thing that's really interesting is that there's actually so I made fun of Bernie Sanders a little bit、um, in the beginning of this podcast. But what's interesting is that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, despite being almost ideologically opposite, have a lot of similarities in a weird way, and that they're both people who appeal. To those forgotten populations within our society, because for the past thirty or so years,、uh, you know, when it comes particularly with economic policy, but with other things, you know that that what a lot of people, I guess, would refer to as corporatism or globalism, you know, even statism in certain instances, has been the dominant political ideology, emphasizing the global economy over the United States economy. The idea that multiculturalism is a good thing for American society to have. The idea that whites, particularly middle class whites, working whites, are are privileged. You know that so starting to favor the poor and the ultra wealthy a little bit more than just the average American working class person. That has been the status quo for a long time, and there's a lot of promises that were associated with that. The promises was these 
globalist economic policies, trade with China, accepting immigrants, uh, you know, that the multiculturalism, we're going to bring all these great benefits for our society. Um, and in some ways they have, like, that's why Trump is so controversial, because there's a lot of people who have benefited a lot from this. You know, I mentioned too already the ultra rich and the very poor. Um, and you could also make the argument that certain minority groups have benefited from this. The, you know, there's certain foreign governments that certainly have benefited from this as well. But with those benefits, there's been a lot of costs and those costs have been imposed upon people who have been promised that they would benefit from this system. Um, and they have not. And kind of going back to the culture war with the difference, differences between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, that, that Hillary Clinton, I think, re represented this this old way of thinking that, you know, the idea that it not only is it good, but if there are any problems that the solutions to those can still materialize within the framework of the old status quo was Trump was almost like a conservative version of Bernie. You know, obviously Bernie is like a democratic socialist. So, you know, once again, politically they're opposite, but culturally they're sort of similar in the sense that very much like Bernie Sanders, um, Trump was like, no, you know, the current system is broken, that this is something that has caused people to suffer, that there's a lot of people who are disadvantaged as a result of the way our economic system is set up. Our, our foreign policy has been done wrong. We're too pro-China. We're too in favor of military interventionism, that sort of thing. Um, and that, Trump was basically a manifestation of a cultural worldview turning itself into a political ideology. And Hillary Clinton was kind of the same thing. She was, I guess, what a lot of Trump supporters would call the deep state. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the corporations, the globalists, the military establishment, the people who were benefiting from the previous status quo. And I think what made Trump the winner, I'm going to keep this short because in, in some ways I think I've already answered this for my part, was that he he really made his campaign about the everyday issues that were impacting Americans, as well as about the issues that were big, but that nobody wanted to talk about. Hillary Clinton seemed pretty content to gloss over certain things, such as the rise of China, and to continue to try the same solutions that we've been using for a long time that haven't worked, at least in the eyes of a lot of American voters. Trump was more radical and, and was willing to, to address some of the shortcomings of the system and say, you know what, there needs to be some fundamental reform here. And, and he wasn't afraid to step on toes to do it, kind of going back to that that cultural aspect, you know, that he, he wasn't afraid to offend people, to use language that was not politically correct, to take some positions that, you know, according to a lot of people even were racist in order to get this message forward and to bring attention to some of these issues, whereas, whereas Hillary Clinton was more, you know, along the lines of don't rock the boat and that too much change can be very dangerous because we don't know where it could lead us and that the system as it was before had been working very well for a pretty large segment of the American population. So, Nicholas, what do you think? How, how do you interpret this? Do you agree with what's been said or do you have your own interpretation of, of events? Um, I would say I, for the large part, pretty much uh, agree with both of the opinions that were just presented and that I do agree with you, Hewn, uh, Professor Hewn, about the difference between social and political capital, because from my understanding and uh, my own experience of watching it, uh, Trump for sure had the social capital and he also had the history of being a celebrity, you know, things on The Apprentice or various uh cameos in various movies throughout the 90s and early 2000s while hillary from what you know about her was that back in the 90s she was involved with the war in iraq or her she's the husband of bill clinton and then there was that in uh that special case when he was president and then later on her experience as the state secretary so for a lot of the 
uh, American population, both both in the Republican and Democratic parties, they saw Trump as this man that would, uh, if you got him angry, he's just going to tell you things straight as it is, doesn't matter if it's offensive or somehow seen racist, no matter what side you're on. While with Hillary, just like what you said, Preston, that don't rock the boat uh, as the establishment or from what a lot of the populace would say, the, that uh, they would be elite or as with political capital, be able to do things from the sidelines and no one would actually know. And this is also why a lot of the Democratic supporters, I mean, a lot of the Democratic voters switched with Bernie at the very beginning of the uh, Democratic nomination for a lot of the time. He was the upfronter in some polls, was seen as one that could actually beat Hillary in a nomination. And whether you believe there's some political intrigue in there, uh, other things that made Trump very in, uh, able to win the nom not just the nomination, but also win the presidency besides his social capital, was that other than being able to speak to people, earlier y'all mentioned that he is a, bit, a maverick businessman. He's also from New York. And then on top of that, because of the fact that he's rich, unlike the establishment, which like Hillary, she would need supporters from various CPACs, uh, other supporters or people from uh, large donations. While Trump, on the other hand, he didn't need that. He could just use the money, spend it like that as the businessman that he is. Mm -hmm. And then because of the comments that he made that were both either inflammatory or straight up racist, depending on your viewpoint, the media could not stop, uh, ad, uh, not advocating, but uh, displaying his comments. And because of that, the way he said it, very simple, but yet very inflammatory, just enough for the population to remember it. And everything that he said was memorable. Build the wall, drain the swamp, crooked Hillary, lion Ted, all of these different uh, one-liners, quotes, or, or in some cases, there was this one case with... Uh, Ted Cruz, where Ted Cruz was doing a speech, and Trump, I kid you not, he goes in his private jet and flies in right during the time that Ted Cruz is in the middle of a uh, fundraising campaign or so, right next to the airport, just to tro uh, just with the troll or joke with him. So you could say that Trump, at the same time, he's also a comedian in a sense, but yeah. that's partially because of his uh, actor days. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, then, I, oh, sorry. Oh, no, you, you can go I ahead. I was going to say one last thing and involving Hillary is that one of the things I found especially interesting with her was that whatever she said, it had seemed to backfire on her when it came for the Democratic vote. Because, for instance, you said that the angry, white, uh, working-class man felt disenfranchised. And one of the things I remember about this was that with Hillary, she mentioned something along the lines that she wanted to protect the environment, help the environment, but at the cost of the coal mining industries in Appalachia. And then there was also that comment involving the steel factory workers over in places like Pennsylvania. That's why a lot of the Appalachian mountain range and Pennsylvania decided to switch for Trump. And the same thing goes for the car manufacturers when he said, I'm going to bring back manufacturing because China has done all of these different things to them. And then on last thing was that Hillary for some reason, didn't seem to show up in the Northeast as much to help build the base under the assumption that, well, it's always been like that for so long, so yeah. why would I need to go after And it's, it's interesting because Trump was able to to win votes in areas where Democrats traditionally have dominated. And I think mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with that social capital that you had talked about earlier, that 
you, you know, I had a conversation with someone else about this, and what's really weird is how, for like, getting with like, with the tariffs on China and on Mexico and these different countries, mm-hmm. that traditionally it's been the Democrats who are like fair trade, you know, free trade, reciprocity, whatever, and the Republicans were the unilateral free trade party. You know, that the Democrats wanted to run our trade policy sort of like Britain, and the Republicans mm-hmm. want to run it like the Dutch Republic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, whereas that flipped with Trump, and I think what it was is because in a lot of ways, especially when it came to China. The Democrats were just giving lip service to people. You know, Obama said that he was going to confront China and he didn't do anything except like some agreement with cyber attacks. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, shouldn't shouldn't cyber attacks be legal, illegal no matter what? Right. I mean, but but the other thing, too, is I think it's interesting that you bring up like what CNN, because the whole the, the irony with Donald Trump winning is the fact that his enemies are, are the ones who almost guaranteed that it would happen because they were giving him free mm-hmm. coverage. You know, everybody else had to pay to have their ads. They had to pay for experience. You know, Clinton and Bernie and all these other people. It's like, you know, we, we, we have to pay the news stations to be here. Whereas Trump, not only did he have a bunch of money, not only his own money, but then also donations, but also that, yeah, they were giving it to him for free and everybody knew who Donald mm-hmm. Trump was. Like, if you went up to a random person and asked them, name one presidential candidate, first person they would have said was Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um so that brings up some another interesting point because one word, and this is not exclusive. Like I've heard this used to describe Bernie as well, um, but I think you know it's used even more often to describe Trump, and that is is populist. Mm-hmm. Um, we see populist movements popping up around the world in Italy, in France, and even in Brazil with Bolsonaro, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's not that much of a surprise that a lot of people are saying that Trump is a populist. And I think this makes a lot of sense considering some of his rhetoric and some of the issues that he chooses. But in this day and age of political correctness and social justice warriors and ultra conservative hardliners, you know, a lot of words get thrown around and taken out of context and the meaning gets warped. You know, like like one that comes to mind is the word Nazi. You know, people Mm -hmm. just, you know, they'll go and call someone a Nazi. Um, You know, and there are real Nazis out there and they're very dangerous, but I think a lot of people don't understand what Nazis actually are. So with populism, is Trump a populist? The the next question is, are the Trump candidacy and presidency directly related to a cult of personality, a signature characteristic of populists? So um, actually, Dr. Hyun, if you don't mind, just to mix it up, um, I actually wanted to start with Nick. Okay, on this one. Go ahead. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. About the cult of personality <laughs> yeah. and populism. Like well, the song, Cult of Personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, actually, I want to touch up a little bit on populism, but this will go into uh, the question. And that, in my opinion, uh, populism, re- part of the reason why it started arising was throughout the early 2000s, you always had established uh, candidates that would always end up becoming the leaders. And also back in, I believe it was 2012-ish, there was the Occupy Wall Street movement, taking out the 1% Wall Street owners and then the 99% was everyone else. Yeah, it's like what, the so, 0.1 or the 1%? Yeah, like, exactly. They, they keep throwing around these. And, I remember that South Park yeah. episode where they made fun of that, where it's like, we're the 3%, no, we're the 45%. Exactly. Like, they, they misunderstood the media. <laughs> in my opinion, that's probably one of the first... It, it could have been left out as, oh, that was just that one populist movement or one little protest... But no, both of the parties mm-hmm. saw it as something useful in political capital. So both sides, event, some of the candidates that were seen as more populist were able to get more fame and more notoriety in some cases. 
to become more famous, i.e. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump being the most famous cases, at least in the United States. But, but even I think there are some other cases as well, especially even more recently. Like I think AOC is another example oh, of yeah, that. Oh yeah, she's a great in example fact, of that. In fact, Ted Cruz... Ted Cruz is sort of in a weird position because he he's is, a quasi. He, he's like, yeah, I was about to say he's a quasi because he is part of the establishment, but in terms of like some of his messaging, he's almost like a precursor to Trump in a way because yeah. because Ted Cruz's version of conservatism was very grassroots mm -hmm. um, and, and, and and similar to Trump and similar to Bernie Sanders and AOC, it, it, he his ground game was very strong and he identified the issues that everyday yep. voters really care mm -hmm. about and focused on those. Actually, and and yep. he, he successfully repeated it. That's why he beat Beto, even mm -hmm. though. Beto that did come close ted cruz stayed in power because of that right and that's why i find ted cruz really interesting because he's one of the first people that you could say okay he was adopting some populist populism sentiments during that time actually yeah. during the occupy wall street movement uh ted cruz was one of the first people to be in support of it yeah or something of, like of that nature so, so but, dr hyun i think that'd be a good time for you to chime in is it fair to characterize trump's victory as a result of a cult of personality well, you guys add a really insightful idea to that uh, question already. So just uh, let me add uh, just a couple more to that. Yes, uh, the answer is yes. And Trump's infallibility and immunity to criticism is definitely his personality that had worked in his candidacy and presidency. Trump is a great promoter, framing and interpreting uh, failure as a great success and taking negative things as a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. It works well for American voters, in other words, American audience, who are looking for a rosy, happy ending in political shows. So, uh, we can imply uh, his voters are actually clicked by uh, Donald Trump's strong punchback personality from uh, some uh, national survey open-ended uh, questions and voters answer, especially from in 2016 American national election studies. And his voters, for example, said that he's strong and extreme, and thus he can do something for us. And also he's 100% American for America, representing my republicanism and conserv uh, conservatism, and saying what America really wanted to hear. So his voters' perception about his personality is actually in line with nationalism and conservatism and protect protectionism that have been actually uh, personally talked about previously. It has been uh, also treated as uh, more negative, discriminative, un-American, and politically incorrect. But they are actually uh, they actually exist at the bottom of American heart and political brain. Donald Trump expresses his mind with extremely self-oriented, optimistic view. So the cult of a per uh, personality, yes, it can be a very feasible answer for Trumpism, mm -hmm. uh, starting from the campaign in 2016 until now as his presidency. So regarding that, let, I actually want to briefly visit one of my uh, collaborative work about Trump administration outcome oriented perspectives and uh, his uh, conservatism. 
uh, may it will shape our country, especially some of our important policy. So let me just briefly talk about how those direction or his perspectives will shape our welfare policy in our next five to ten years. So actually, uh, our uh, the collaborative study expect that the number of welfare recipients will drop. Uh, based on efficiency and outcome-oriented perspectives of his administration. And also penalties for not meeting requirement and criteria will be harsher for all and especially for social minorities. Uh, so these are Donald Trump's, I say, framed American conservatism. Uh, that actually tuning in American voters to support for him. Uh, so uh, I think at this stage, it is a good uh, time uh, to ask you, by the way, just regarding all this, how do you know how much and to what degree you like a candidate over another candidate? Mm -hmm. So that one, um, if, if you don't mind, I'll respond just real briefly to what you said about the previous one, then get okay. into that. Um, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head with immunity to criticism, because yeah. for me, like I 100% agree with you in that when it comes to this question of is the presidency related to a cult of personality, I think the answer is obvious that yes, and, and the reason why has to do with how he's been able to not only represent the public, but sort of transform their opinions. That, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, like you look at, like most politicians have to be very careful what they say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that because like if Ted, if Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton goes out there and says something racist, you mm -hmm. know, the media is just going to be all over that. But, mm -hmm. but Trump has figured out how to manipulate the media to give him what he wants. Mm -hmm. And I think the flipping of the parties mm -hmm. on certain issues in a lot of ways is, is a perfect example of, of why Donald Trump is a populist. You look at gun control, for example, that the, the Republicans under Obama, it's like they opposed all gun control. It's like, no, we don't want any new gun laws. You know, you should be able to have, you know, you know AR-15s and AK-47s and, and guided exploding bears launched out of no. backpacks, <laughs> you know, like, like whatever it may be. And, and, and guys, if any, if any Republicans got offended, okay, I'm pro-gun, all right? I'm just messing with it. I've got to have a sense of humor. But, you know, the point is that a lot of the Republicans were very, um, like, staunchly pro-gun. And then Trump proposes gun control, and he's already enacted more gun control than Obama, but the Republicans are just like, oh, you know, he's protecting the Second Amendment. And I think the same thing can be said with trade. Like I was talking about the flip before, and what, mm -hmm. what Trump has done is he's exploited the increasingly tribal nature of American politics, and he has turned that into a way for him to become the center of gravity for the conservative movement it's not about the ideas anymore it's about the factions and the parties um and then when we're getting to this next question about how do we know you know how much and to what degree someone likes a candidate over another you know that depends on the person but i think it, it falls sort of into two categories really the one that's more common and, and didn't always exist to the degree it does now is i think that it that is that that candidate identifies or represents rather with the group that the person identifies as you know like we, we see american politics becoming more and more and more tribal people want a white or a black candidate to be in office they want a republican or a democrat and the ideas have just become political pawns that people manipulate and use and change positions on to get in office. People want someone that looks like them 
that comes from the same place as them and identifies with the same party as them. So really relatability seems to be the primary thing that even if we're ideologically distant, if I'm black and you're black, or if I'm Republican and you're a Republican, you know, more and more these days in the United States, it seems like that is the basis for forming a coalition. And there's a certain assumption that all like that these groups should think the same. That being said, not everyone votes like that. And I think it's actually very dangerous to vote like that because these tribal politics have led to all sorts of conflicts in other countries. You know, you look at places like Iraq, that was one of the main reasons why the United States war in Iraq failed because we failed to take into account the influence that tribal politics had on the overall political situation in the country. Um, and that that makes a country very prone either to instability or to a strongman type of government where it's only stable because one big powerful dictator like Saddam Hussein comes in and is able to control everybody. Um, and that the other way that people um, form positions on candidates, and I, I think this is a big factor with Ted Cruz, we said he was sort of a quasi-populist, is when people focus on issues that are of personal importance to the voter. That whether there's a cult of personality or not, whether tribal politics exists or not, the reality is that I'm more likely to vote on issues that affect me. You know, so like I'll give a couple examples. You know, I'm a student. I'm a gun owner. I'm a resident of Texas. You know, that there's there's certain categories that I fall into that because I fall into those categories, certain policies are going to affect me. Policies with student loans are going to affect me. Any kind of gun control is going to affect me and that I'm going to be more inclined to vote for candidates based on those issues as opposed to something that does not affect me. So maybe like social security, right? Usually social security is going to be more of an issue for older folks. And that while that might still be important for me, because I recognize this is an important policy or an important aspect of our policies, I might not care as much about social security as I do about college tuition or our gun laws, mm -hmm. because that's not something that has that direct repercussion on my life. Um, so, so Nick, what do you think? How, um, how do you yes, know? Well, you, you, yeah, you, you just go ahead. What you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, both of y'all are extremely detailed. So, uh, sorry if it's going to sound like I'm parroting some of your both of your <laughs> takes. Ah, probably want a cracker. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, on the question about the cult personality and so forth, I would say pretty much yes. And the, my reasoning for this is not necessarily for the modern but more like in the understanding of the historical. Because this isn't the first time that a very outspoken, maverick-type character mm -hmm. has ever, well, create a cult of personality. Like, I could name several off the bat. Uh, Andrew Jackson, mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Abe Lincoln to a lesser extent, and then a number of other candidates that went off of populist principles. Yeah. Or, so for, yeah. for the sake of time, though, I just wanted, because we, we already talked about populism a little bit. Yeah. Um, right right now, we sort of switched gears yeah, right. to, sorry, you know, yeah. why people prefer candidates, um, you know, what drives people to, to vote for one candidate over another. Uh, and I just provided an explanation. I want Dr. Hyun to in, in a little bit as well, but I was just wondering, how, how do you characterize that? What do you think really makes the American voter tick? Um, and, and why do people choose one candidate over another? How does that thought process work? Mm. I would say it'd probably be more along the lines of, is it relatable to me? Will it affect me? And can I even understand what they're saying? And then this wasn't so common in the past per se, well, depending on the situation, but it's probably more common now, thanks to the, uh, the ascension of the internet and that, uh, online follow everything online through social media and stuff so it would be along the lines of 
Is it reasonable for me to understand? And if so, um, uh, will I be able to take a look into this myself? And is this actually applicable? Is this something of truth or is this just a lie with very nice words in it? Yeah. With the hint of sugar since we're American. Exactly. So, so what's your, your answer, Dr. Well, How, what do you make of all the this? The reason I actually ask you guys that, uh, these are the questions that uh, we always ask each other. Why you like the candidate and how you like a candidate? So just uh, I wanted, as the scholarly perspectives, I wanted to propose and suggest a couple of the measures maybe you can use for your candidate uh, in 2020 or in the future elections. So yeah, as you guys mentioned that exactly, people use multiple tools, criteria, channels to evaluate their political candidate. But um, the first uh, measures actually it can be more consistent and systematic when you look at different candidates. Uh, you can use a relative preference. So actually, that concept was introduced by Cruz and Candle uh, in 1995. So they uh, use a concept of relative spectrum uh, to describe voters simultaneous evaluation of multiple candidates. So the idea of a voter's relative preference for a candidate is assessed by the distance between a preferred candidate and opposing candidate in the voter's mind. So voters' initial perception of different uh, these differences serve as the basis of cognitive uh, preference and later any new information just simply enhance the voters uh, relative political preference of different candidates so actually this measure is really good measure we can imply to uh, 2016 election uh, where and when voters openly express their mm -hmm. voting choice was to avoid the worst choice and then the next and the uh, um, next measure I wanted to suggest is related to what what we previously discussed as the capital thing. So candidate capital warmth. So voters actually like a candidate for a reason, right? And there is also certain degrees they feel about their candidate. So we can use the combined effect of. Uh, voters warmth toward the variety and various types and dimensions of candidate capitals. So it can be relatively uh, more consistent approach by understanding both dimensions and degrees of candidate preferences. So this hybrid concept of candidate capital warmth is more real, I mean, I believe is a more real world reflective measure of voters' precondition for voting because um, specific candidate political, social, economic uh, captures and you know ability and functions uh, that perceived by voters and also voters' overall warmth toward this candidate cannot be separable in the electoral process. So this constructed measures is theoretically more exhaustive and methodologically more exclusive approach. So with actually this measure, uh, I was able to find uh, Trump's social capital want was higher than Clinton's. And it might be the straight answer for the surprising result of the 2016 election.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's definitely you know that's definitely important because you know the, those relative differences between the candidates at the end of the day, no matter how strong our ideology might be, we're limited by the choices that we end up having, and that mm-hmm. you know if I'm if I'm anti-China or pro-gun or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, even if everybody is pro-China and anti-gun, I'm probably gonna want the person who's maybe like the less the least intense yeah. of all of those. Like you mm-hmm. know maybe they'd be willing to stand that China's under some circumstances, or maybe they yeah. don't want to ban all guns; they just want to ban like a very certain narrow yeah. range of types. Um, and, I, and once again, I think that sets us up very well for the next question, uh, because when it comes to the candidates, we have a lot of choices in this upcoming mm-hmm. election. I mean, not only do we have President Trump, but the Democrats have what? How many? I mean, the, you know, given that's going to be narrowed down to one, obviously, but you know, you got the primary to worry about and that mm-hmm. that primary is going to be brutal. Um, and there, a lot of them are talking about different things. Like some of them are focused on healthcare, especially with Bernie. And then you know you got Andrew Yang with his his uh, you know universal basic income, which you know whether whether you agree with it or disagree with it is a pretty interesting and unique idea compared to the way we've done things before. Um, so, in a lot of ways, who ends up being the nominee on the Democratic side, as well as whether or not Trump is able to beat them. Are going to be determined not only how strong they are from a policy perspective like in terms of being able to solve problems effectively but also where they fall on that scale like you had said so what will be the key issues and agendas for the 2020 election um, and how will the campaigns be shaped in 2020 what issues are really going to be most important that sway voters mm-hmm. one way or another yeah, that is a really also important question as we talked about. Yeah, so this early primary campaign season, and uh, you can feel and I can feel we breathe the unpleasant air of identity clash, okay, based on race, gender, so socioeconomic classes, and more. And uh, the quality of air is different for different people in American society now. So uh, overall, the picture-wise, I think it will shake the root of this country. But at the same time, it can be a great opportunity to heal and reshape American society and foundation. So let's go back to some key issues and key agendas and the circumstance and landscape. So let's talk about racism, whiteness versus none in Donald Trump's uh, political candidacy and presidency. He asked the squad indicating for uh, minority Congress women to go back to where they came from, right? So in this statement, he denied his own people and his own employees. However, okay, it is statistically his winning political strategy, cultivating certain links with the majority of American voters based on sort of exclusive social capital. Okay. So uh, our population consists of uh, more than 70% of whiteness background. Okay. So if you can connect with them through sort of exclusive channels, you are the winner. So Trump is playing a very clever political game here. Okay. And a priority campaign issue will be um, will build on still current identity clash and stay on as what uh, Preston brought in and talked about uh, health care and immigration. Okay? 
that has been uh, the target issued by Donald Trump. Throughout the campaign, uh, minor uh, functional differences between Obamacare and Trumpcare will be exaggerated, and then the gulf between us and others will get wider, wider and deeper as long as Donald Trump continues his political strategy and Democratic Party challengers keep responding with the blaming strategy. As uh, uh, Donald Trump's campaign strategy in 2020 campaign um, continues, uh, calling out personality and image rather than policy will expected to be continued. And uh, Mark Lauder, uh, who is Donald Trump's uh, strategic communication director, stated that digital campaign will be uh, utilized as a main channel for communication with his loyal supporters. And actually, social media can serve a very different platform that comfort, especially exclusively likely-minded supporters. So for example, Facebook and Twitter, Twitter will be the main uh, channel, I'm sorry, the main campaign channel for Trump's re-election that meets his campaign strategy against the mainstream news media. That's some of a brief idea I can provide. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's very good. And there's actually a couple things that I would add on to that. Um, you know, sort of an economic one, a political one, and then maybe even a philosophical one as well. Sure. I think this the last one kind of overlaps philosophical mm -hmm. and social. So I think with the economic one, I, and I mean, this one should probably be obvious, you know, to, but I think it's important enough where we should discuss our jobs. Um, you know, the consistently, according to polls, the number one issue for not all, but a lot of American voters has been the economy, particularly with jobs. And that in a lot of ways, whether or not Trump gets elected is going to be dependent on two things. A, whether or not his job creation strategies are viewed as successful, and then B, whether or not um, the Democrats are able to come up with a better alternative. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those are similar questions, but they're not quite the same. And, and the reason why is is because you know every policy has benefits and drawbacks, and that mm -hmm. weighing those is very critical to establishing something that's going to be the best for the largest number of people. Um, as well as satisfy the different political interests in the country. So Trump's trade war with China, for example, that obviously there's a little bit of anxiety. We don't know what's going to go on in the future. But so far, at least in terms of what information is available right now, it's gone pretty well. Unemployment is very low. Black unemployment is at an all-time low. Um, the United States exports have been strong, that kind of thing. Um, however, you know, what you do have is that there are certain sectors of the economy that, um, have been hurt. You can't look at the economy as like a monolithic thing that was mm -hmm. happened is that, you know, middle-class workers, um, industrial mm -hmm. sectors, um, you know, th those sort of areas have benefited from this trade war, but you know, you let, you hear the Democrats talking about this a lot, the soybean farmers mm -hmm. now, you know, obviously, well, first of all, I think farmers do have sort of a disproportionate amount of political power, which is one of the reasons why that's an issue. But even beyond that, if, the, you know, one of the, obviously, well, in the United States, we like to see things as black and white, but there's a lot of gray in between with this. There's some people who they want to characterize it as either you're for the tariffs or against them. But there's also a significant chunk of people, um, and I've actually talked to a lot of them within the Libertarian Party, 
that they're anti-China, but they just don't think that the tariffs are the best way of handling it. That maybe there's other solutions that could be just as effective or even more so. And that even if Trump does win, you know, bigly, you know, Mm -hmm. in the sense that he's able to create a good economy, it's possible that maybe if a Democrat was able to come up with a way to address some of the same trade problems, but without tariffs, you know, maybe put pressure on China in other ways, maybe maybe use the military. I don't know, the, the neocons might make a comeback here, you know, maybe use the military. That that could be a way for them to actually pull the rug out from underneath Trump. You know, let's say we drop all the tariffs on China, but we give Taiwan nuclear weapons and say, you know, these are pointed at Beijing if you don't change something. That would obviously be a very high risk strategy, but it could be a way of, you know, dealing with some of these challenges without having to raise tariffs. That segues into another thing. I think the political element is America's place in the world is something that's going to be very big in the 2020 election. The Democrats, by and large, not all of them, like I think Tulsi Gabbard, um, is more moderate, and then Bernie Sanders, as much as he might want to not admit it, is an economic nationalist, just like Donald Trump. Um, but the, but by and large, the Democrats are a bit more dovish, and that they are more willing to defer to other powers. They're okay if China rules the world, and if the United States kind of, you know, goes down <laughs> in, in, into the history books as a power that once was. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Trump, man, he wants America to be the biggest. He wants America to be the best. He wants America to be strong and sure. to, to beat <laughs> communism, beat terrorism. And that some people like that, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, successful, strong foreign policy. But other people don't because, you know, you, you have things like, you know, the, the liberals a lot of times will talk about um, economic and, and military and diplomatic privilege that are enjoyed by the white you know minority in the world you know i've heard the phrase global majority used a lot that the united states is imperialist and that we need to step down and let other countries dominate us as sort of like this social justice equity kind of argument um and that that's going to be a a big thing like this is we're at a moment that's critical in the same sense that the allowing india to separate from the british empire was basically a vote to end the empire america very much like China, because China is a colonial power. That's a topic for another podcast, but they are a colonial power. Um, the United States is also a colonial power, very much like China. The United States is an empire. And that 2020, in some ways, might be a vote as to a vote on the empire. Do we continue the empire? Do we challenge China? Do we want to push other empires out of our way? Or is imperialism bad? The last thing, the philosophical one, and this is almost like the domestic aspect of what I just talked about with the empire thing, is equality versus equity in terms of how economic opportunity is distributed. Uh, I think the conservative people, you know, with Trump are more along the lines of let's try to create an even playing field. I will qualify that he does seem to definitely be favoring the rich, as a lot of Republicans seem to do, but philosophically at least it's like you know work hard you know use the free market to move up that kind of thing whereas the the leftists and the liberals seem more concerned with equity you know helping people who who have historically been disadvantaged to move up as well as making sure that resources are distributed in a way that is fair Mm -hmm. even if that might mean that they're distributed in a way that's less efficient that is a really uh, good observation and insight Man, I wish I could do it as complex as that. I don't know. I think, uh, <laughs> I think what you've been saying pretty so far, Nick, has been pretty good. I'm not going to lie. Well, don't, don't underestimate this yourself, is, man. This is probably going to be my weakest part of this entire thing. Uh, but in terms of this, I would say it's 
at the at the moment it's kind of to me it's situational i mean you can obviously say all right trump trump is trump for the republican side for 2020 end of story um for the Democrats, on the other hand, or for the left, or liberals, because mind you, they're two different. Yeah, animals. liberals and leftists are different. Yeah, they are two different. A lot animals. of times, they're part of the same party, but ideologically, they're very different. Yeah, ideology. <laughs> yeah, ideology-wise, they're different animals. Like I said before, so I would say it depends on who can win, and as of right now, the top three, in my opinion, would ever do well would be Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. Joe Biden, Bernie, and Elizabeth Warren. And I'm going to say probably out of all of them, Elizabeth Warren actually probably has the best bet uh, since she can appeal to both sides, which is really unusual considering um, because she's both a little bit like a Bernie, but yet at the same time kind of a, a little bit of an establishment at the same time. So that's why I think out of both, out of any of the three, she has the best chance, even though, yeah, you're right, Tulsi Gabbard, moderate the yang gang i'm sorry there's there's only so much he can do with one policy and i think yang yang is just interesting more than anything he's else. interesting like, I, you can't, I don't really know where to put yang you know and that he's one of those people that he, he's almost like like he's a true dark horse he's, he's really not he's not it. a pop he's able to be radical without being populist that's really the best way i put it that you know like bernie sanders and donald trump he has ideas that are just so far outside of what we consider normal that it, it, if they were to be enacted to turn up things upside down but i think unlike trump and bernie he's more calculated his rhetoric is more carefully constructed and he's not like mm -hmm. the, this bombastic leader yeah who just, however he needs to branch out uh but yeah, for both sides, for me, I do kind of, I do agree with you to an extent about the philosophical part, but that I would say that's more along in the future, probably in the next decade or so. Uh, whether in the more present times, I just believe that at least with the left or left and right, I'm going to use those terms for this case. And for the left, it's it's going to be terms of uh, immigration, how Medicare, whether it's for all or more state based. And then there's the more common one that's really just a talking point than anything else. Take Trump out. And then for the right, it's, well, look at what's happened in my administration. The economy has been doing well. I have done pretty much what, as I have promised, according to Donald Trump. Yeah. He's done almost everything that he said he promised, yeah, I think, according to him. I think if the economy continues to grow, Trump is going to get reelected. Yeah, if we is, go into a recession, yeah. he's not. It's sim That's my prediction. Yeah, as this, simple as that. Yeah, and this is where I'm going to say this is the case where he now has not only social capital, but political capital now. Mm -hmm. Although yeah. it's not, I would say, it's not nearly as strong as something like Hillary Clinton back in 2016, but... It's but good it's, enough it's strong. It's strong enough that what it is, I think he's it's made, a multiplier. He's what it is. He's in a strong position now than he was before because before he was good on social capital, but kind of weak on political capital. Mm -hmm. Now he still has good social capital, but his political capital has increased, so mm -hmm. he's in a stronger position. Um, so. In that conversation, we talked a lot about ideology. We mentioned extremists and moderates, mm -hmm. the difference between leftists and liberals, as well as implicitly, at least, talking about maybe with the alternatives to tariffs, some of the different flavors of conservatism that might exist. If by some miraculous chain of events, conservative Democrats come back, you know, what flavor of conservatism might mm -hmm. they bring to challenge the Republican conservatism? 
because of that, there's a lot of different paths that the Democrats could take when they're trying to challenge Trump ideologically. And that leads us to our next question. In challenging Trump, do you think the Democrats will nominate someone more extreme? Uh, so kind of have like a counterweight to Trump's bombastic populist rhetoric. Or will they have a strategy uh, to be more moderate, to appeal to the center with uh, the intent of taking voters away from Donald Trump? Um, and then I guess a follow-up question to that is, which of these two strategies do you think would be more effective and why, Dr. Hyun? Okay, you two actually elaborate great ideas and the, all the potential strategies and possibilities. Let's just, let me uh, expand upon your discussion. Let's go from there. Uh, so in early uh, round of a primary campaign now, each Democratic Party candidate uh, they stand on their own issue, emphasize this is my issue, right? Issue ownership, such as gun, college, uh, college education, education, and healthcare, selling their uh, best image and brand to voters, right? But uh, they all orchestrated to go against Trump issues, especially about uh, healthcare and immigration, right? Mm -hmm. And. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, as a classic strategy, yes, that's a, uh, that's a, the strategy that Democratic Party challengers can use. And they will uh, blame and attack the incumbent uh, Donald Trump in general election campaign in 2020. Donald Trump is a very unconventional Republican president. <laughs> so, that's uh, another understatement. Okay. Um, Therefore, uh, Democratic Party will focus on issues and other uh, matters that actually damage Donald Trump's successful part of candidacy and presidency, such as maybe we already talked about social capital, right? Rather than uh, to be extreme to either ideological spectrum. So uh, my uh, scholarly perspectives as uh, the, uh, um, the uh, expert in the campaigning election, there are three different strategies uh, that Democratic Party can use. First, take a complete opposite direction against Donald Trump to be connected with the other side of exclusive supporters from one, I'm sorry, from non-whiteness background. Mm -hmm. But with this strategy, Democratic Party will lose uh, with the still um, minority supporters in number and in power, right? So still with us, uh, smaller uh, supporters, less power, it has a less chance. And mm -hmm. second, uh, break and damage the connection actually Donald Trump has with his loose supporters by attacking his policies, issues, and personality. There is a chance if the Democratic Party candidate can build a stronger connection with more voters in number. Right? Mm -hmm. But it's not still the best uh, strategy. Third, go completely with uh, its own democratic platforms and create new campaign landscape, uh, escaping from another Trumpism campaign. It is risky, as what our, our person talked about before, 
previously, but it will give a highest chance for Democratic Party candidate to win by leading the campaign that Donald Trump is not prepared for and mm -hmm. clearing up the campaign field that led by Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And like, and actually, because my, my answer to this, I, I think, in terms of the extremism versus moderate is a little bit unconventional. Okay. I wouldn't really put it into one category or another. I think it's more about being able to pick their battles more effectively. Because I think both extremism and moderate tendencies have their place in politics, you know, mm -hmm. because on one hand, you don't want to be too extreme because you can alienate a large portion of your voters. But on the other hand, there is such a thing as being too moderate, you know, that being extreme, um, you know, like, for example, with me, like if I were run, to run for office, you know, like two positions that I know I would be considered extreme on would be China and guns, you know, that I'm very, very anti-China and pro-US hegemony, and I'm like extremely pro-gun, like legalized full auto weapons uh, kind of pro-gun, um, and those would kind of be my issues. But I know I wouldn't be able to be like that on everything, that I would have to sort of scale back and moderate my positions on other issues. Mm -hmm. Because what can happen is that if you're just too radical, you're outside of what people are comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And that the problem with the Democrats, I, I think, is not so much that they're being too extreme, mm -hmm. but more that they're trying to be extreme on too many things. Mm -hmm. That the mm -hmm. fact that they're trying to oppose every single thing that Trump has done, whatever Trump mm -hmm. does, do the opposite. That's been the Democratic strategy, mm -hmm. and it has not worked. Mm -hmm. What I think they need to do to win in 2020 is be able to pick a handful of issues to take those hardline stances on and say, no, you know, what has been happening under Trump is completely unacceptable. We need to change. So whether that be tackling gun violence, whether that be challenging Trump's tariffs, whether that be, you know, uh, social issues, particularly with racism. Like for me, if I had to challenge Trump on one thing, it'd be that. I do think Trump has been a racist, and that I think is one of the most dangerous things about this particular president. But, you know, whichever one of those things it may be, you know, pick that issue, immigration, whatever, and say, we will do the opposite of what Trump does on that issue. And that gives you... Um, it, it, it gives you that ability to, to, to distinguish yourself from the political opposition and to show the American public that you stand for something. But at the same time, being moderate on everything else, you know, outside of those issues, showing that willingness to compromise and be like, hey, you know, we'll work with the other side when possible. Um, and it, what that does is it would allow the Democratic Party to still cultivate a view of their party as the reasonable party um, in contrast to Donald Trump's extremism. Because due to his cult of personality, Trump has been doing what the Democrats, because they don't have as many populists right now, have had a difficult time doing, taking an extreme pos position on almost every issue. And the Democrats can undermine that by providing a counterweight to Trump on a small set of very important issues, but being willing to work with Trump voters to get um, some support from the center. And the way they can go about that, I think it's pretty simple. You know, just look at the polls and really identify whatever Trump's least popular policies mm -hmm. are. 
take extreme positions against those and then be moderate on everything else. That's going to be what a winning strategy for the Democratic Party looks like. I think if they're too moderate, they're just going to be lukewarm. They're going to be the indecisive party that doesn't know what they want and Trump's going to curb stomp them. Whereas if they do what they're doing right now and they're just going to be super extreme, they're going to give Trump the moral high ground because people are going to start seeing the Democratic Party as just an obstructionist party that's salty that they lost in 2016 um, and it's just falling more into the tribal politics of do whatever Trump doesn't want. Mm. Well then, well then, time for me to bring out my two cents. Uh, in this case, I'm going to say, at least for any real opposition against this, uh, against individuals like Trump, I would say that for the Democrats, the problem with them is that they tried to go extreme and they tried everything that they could to destroy his social capital. And instead, it ended up bolstering him. So I would say trying to go as extreme as Trump, that's just bad. It, it makes them, like you said earlier. You can't out-Trump Trump. Yeah, you honestly, <laughs> that's how it is. Like, like, There's really no one that can actually match Like, him. Actually, uh, just to kind of interject for a sec, like, I, I like what you had said earlier, Dr. Hyun, about forcing Trump to play a political game that he is not prepared for. Because Trump is prepared to play his own game. Mm -hmm, you know, exactly. I, I, don't, I don't care how good you are at being Trump. Trump can be Trump better. You know, I, I I think the way to beat him is to be somebody different than Trump, mm -hmm. be an alternative to Trump mm -hmm. and say, you know what? There is, Trump is not all there is. You know, there's other solutions. We can be different. Um, and that to try to force Trump to play the Democrats game, that's how they're going to beat him. Well, I'm exactly. <laughs> this depends on my understanding of it all. So I might actually agree with you or I might not. It just depends. Um, but yeah, like I said before, they can't go as extreme as him. So there's this situation where the way I understand it is you either tone down, stay where you are, or turn it up the not turn it up to eleven. And they've already turned it up to eleven. That mm. failed. Yeah, the socialism. Yeah, they really raised communism. I'm, Ignore what's going on in Venezuela. Exactly. It's just <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm just gonna keep hammering them for that. It, it's just a bad move on their part. They're better off just going back to their roots in the more moderate sense. There's actually an app for that. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, but definitely they need to moderate themselves. And I do somewhat oh, yeah. agree with you about that. There needs to be an issue where Trump is weak at so that they can use as leverage against it. That's the most – that's the basic of basics when it comes to politics. The communism button app is not working. Exactly. You don't fight – That would have been perfect. Like you, I wanted to play yeah. it, but it, it just you, is not cooperating. Yeah, you don't fight the opponent that has the same strength as you. You need to have a strength that can go at their weakness. That's just how it is in almost every fight no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so we're getting ready to wrap up. There's just one more question, and, and I think – so we've gone a little bit long, but not too much. We're at an hour and five minutes, so that's still pretty reasonable. Um, and, and I think that's kind of a broad question. How can we understand the current American political landscape? What helps us to understand who we are and where our country is heading? For example, is political polarization – really shaping our political process. And um, I haven't really answered anything first, so I think I'm going to go ahead and try to tackle this one. Um, and I think it is it is probably the toughest question just because of how broad it is, you it know? Is. But what I would say is that in terms of understanding the American political landscape, it's all about how culture influences the political decisions that get made. 
mm-hmm. um, because you know when you're what the, the way the American government is set up is that we are a constitutional republic. Some countries are not like that. You have countries like China and North Korea where the government dictates everything and that if the people rebel, the people get shot. Um, that's not how it is in the United States, and that alters the relationship that the American people have with the government. And what we really need to look at when we're understanding where American politics is going is a couple of things. First of all, what well, actually I say it'd be one major thing. It's a, what are really the set of underlying assumptions that all American politics have in common? You know, that like when, when, whenever you're talking about a civilization, there's a certain set, there's a certain glue that holds it together. You know, what does it mean to be Roman or Russian or Chinese or American? And there's a certain set of ideals that we've identified that we think make someone an American, you know, um, freedom, you know, individual liberty, limited government, tolerance of other races and cultures and religions, you know, that when you think of America, you think of a diverse and free and tolerant country, you know, where, where people from all around the world are able to come together and exercise their liberties and where the government needs to stay the heck out of it because if they don't, 1776 will commence again. But with, with Donald Trump and with the Democratic Party, you know, like what I had actually told um, someone earlier uh, in another conversation is that, you know, our politics is becoming more authoritarian. And that between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, I think we're now faced with a situation where our vote is not for a liberal or conservative party or for an authoritarian and libertarian party. We're faced with a choice between an authoritarian party and a totalitarian party. And the rise of the third parties uh, a little bit, like the libertarian party is still small, but they're gaining more popularity, I think comes as a result of people being dissatisfied with that. You know, And I would say the Republicans are probably the authoritarian party and depending who they nominate, the Democrats could be either another authoritarian party or even a totalitarian party. And that with all of that, I think a lot of these assumptions are being challenged, these assumptions of what it means to be an American. I think the racism is a perfect example, you know, that for a long time in the United States, you know, we're a melting pot. Immigration is a good thing that like half of our people are here. They came from. I'm not sure if that's the exact number, but like so many people in the United States come from other countries, they immigrated. Like, Dr. Hyana, I think you're from Korea, you had said, yes, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, and that's part of who we are, that we're not this nativist regime, that we accept other people and other cultures. But with Donald Trump's crackdown on immigration and with his racist rhetoric, um, that worldview is being challenged. I think we see a new flavor of American politics that's much more exclusive and is embracing the idea of an ethnostate, embracing the idea that one culture, take it or leave it, is the way to go. Individual freedom is another thing, you know, with all the gun control, with the mass surveillance, that once again, the idea that government should stay out of American people's lives is being challenged, that people are increasingly seeing the government, seeing the government as the solution rather than the problem and are willing to accept major infringements on individual liberty um, in order to achieve security and safety and civilizational cohesion and, and all, you know, foreign policy goals, that sort of thing. And that if it means giving the government more power, um, so be it. Mm. Exactly. I'm completely with you. Yeah. So um, it's about cultural and the changes and uh, new foundation. I'm completely with you about what you just uh, talked about. So connotation of moderation, being neutral, 
has been changed in American society and in political process. They were used to be highly respected and valued, but now being in the middle or being in neither side seemed like weak and less interesting. So it got changed. And on the other hand, uh, strong, big, and different ideas and views are more appealing to people and they are more appreci appreci appreciated. So let's talk about uh, Trumpism. Under Donald Trump's populist-driven political landscape, the routine party practices, it will become uncertain. Habitual partisan loyalty, it has been eroded. So rather, more instant, reactive, and eruptive mass, you know, methods seem like better. So people need now and want more, stronger, or newer kinds of stimuli to reactive and excited about. So more extreme and sensational approaches uh, become more desirable and better solutions. So when the populism is combined with the deep-rooted American values that is about to erupt, whatever it is, liberty, conservatism, freedom, or individualism, it will be super powerful political weapon for any individual or any group in power. So as discussed earlier, as President mentioned and Nick briefly touched on, there will be more dichotomous cleavage based on people's identities. So uh, it will make American society less democratic and less uh, more individualistic, but it can be a different version of liberty. It can be uh, maybe a better version of uh, conservatism. We may need to adopt in contemporary American society and politics. So uh, maybe more extreme uh, nationalism, conservatism can make a more secure American society, maybe domestically, but as what President mentioned briefly as well, internationally, it will erode American world leadership. Therefore, um, we need to look at what will be come on our way with a more awakened mind. Mm -hmm. Oh, all right, Nicodemus, golly. you're on the spot. Oh man, golly, now I have to predict the future, golly. <laughs> no, it's a, definitely it's a really difficult, mm -hmm. challenging issue. It honestly is. Yeah. It's, it's, also because it's not I think, I think I think this this last <laughs> oh, one this, this last one actually was my favorite question like initially yeah. I saw it and like it was a difficult question like man we got to answer that but like now that we've talked about it I'm like you know what I think this sums it up pretty well glad we yeah. had this as the last would, one yeah I would say that the idea of Americanness or rather what we've been American forget Trumpisms <laughs> now we got Nickisms obviously <laughs> Nick, the Nick is right Americanism no. I'm, I'm uh, stealing that but anyway <laughs> Um, I would say that the tip of the old idea of what an American was, specifically the one that we were taught in schools, um, it's definitely being questioned and whether if that's the real idea of America or whether that's true Americanism or just some uh, pixie dust version of it. It just seems to me as if that right now it's become stagnant and that the two parties for ever since the founding of the United States as with political parties, they'll always try to maintain power. And it seems even more so in recent years that they've been trying to undermine each other. 
for instance, the I will give an example. The Republicans want to stop illegal immigration because the Democrats are the ones that say, okay, a lot of people who come in here that are immigrants, they tend to vote Democrat. So if that's the case, then stop the voter base that would vote for yeah, Democrats. Like, like Nick, Nick and I actually, uh, and sorry to interject, but Nick and I actually had discussed that yesterday on the phone that um, one, because like, we were talking about how the two party systems become more and more authoritarian. And it seems like the authoritarian policies that are supported by each party tend to target the demographic that is known to support the other party. So, like, for example, you know, Republicans a lot of times are pro gun. You know, you know, there are a lot of hunters, NRA members, like that kind of stuff. Um, so the Democrats with their gun control agenda, you know, even as much as they may say is about stopping mass shootings, you know, and, and it may be, and it may be about other things as well. That you can't tell me that none of them have thought about that. You know, maybe the prison industrial complex can be filled up with some of these Republicans, and we can take away their rights and and, and mm -hmm. get you know our own political position strengthened. And in a similar way, you know, the Republicans, especially with Trump, have supported a lot of policies that I think could be fairly characterized as racist. Um, and it also happens to be no coincidence that a lot of times minorities have a tendency to vote Democrat, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, it, it, I think it's more calculated than the parties would want us to admit. And it's a scary thing mm -hmm. because if we continue on this path, it could devolve mm -hmm. into the type of tribalism that we have seen in places like the Middle East where previously stable societies have erupted in the conflict yep. due to yep. political division. That's what typically happens with any society, no matter whether it's a republic, a monarchy, or a theocracy. It doesn't, they'll always try to find ways to consolidate power. It's not a rare thing. It, actually, if anything, it would be rare if it never happened. Exactly, that not consolidating <laughs> power is the exception, not the rule. Exactly. But what the two-party system seems to be doing now in the context of human history is actually pretty normal. Mm -hmm. And my... I guess I'm going to have to put a little bit of an optimistic view, partially because, uh, you know, I come from a rural home hey, in let's, Texas. Let's end on a happy note. There's exactly. Wrong I come that. from a rural home in Texas. I mean, I, clearly I'm going to have a very pro-American type of view. And for me, it would be that if nothing changes at the current pace, then, yeah, we're going to have some problems. But if it changes, which I kind of think it does, which it will be, which I kind of think will be the case somewhere around 2024, maybe 2030 at the max, that we might actually have a resurgence of America, or at least back in the days of when America saw itself as the greatest nation on the planet and was able to back that up. And my references for that would be something along the lines of after the Civil War, after the War of 1812, and especially during... Um, Teddy Roosevelt's administration. Mm -hmm. I think it would probably become those kind of types of Americanism, not necessarily to the full-on nationalism aspect, but where pieces of nationalism, but more along the lines of patriotism, will probably research. Yeah. Although I think it, it may be small first. America, I think, and this is kind of where China comes in as the wild card, mm -hmm. um, that I think America really needs a great crisis to yep. forge a new identity and for us to come together and decide who we are again. Um, one thing I always tell people and this knowing how patriotic and, and some would even say nationalistic I can tend to be sometimes in a weird way. I hope mm -hmm. China puts a man on the moon or on mm -hmm. Mars. And the reason why is because I think once, because China is the superpower he hegemon that's challenging the United States. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't see that And our achievements in space are something that, are seen often as uniquely American. 
And I think when that's challenged, we're going to have our World War II moment or our Civil War moment or our Great Depression moment where we realize that stuff has gotten serious. Stuff has gotten real. Yep. And it's time for us to step back to the up to the plate, get rid of this ethnic nationalism, mm -hmm. get rid of this tribalism, get rid of this authoritarianism, yep. and reassert what it means to be an American and to have America be the shining light, um, you know, the city on the hill for the world to emulate, you know, a, a strong, powerful, diverse, multicultural, innovative mm -hmm. country um, that can lead humanity into the future. And that is, you know, the, the vision that whoever ends up winning in 2020, I think all of us here would like to see that America has been great in the past and with any luck will be great in the future. And by partnering with other nations and providing the world with leadership, we can make sure that other peoples and countries are able to become great as well. Uh, it so all with, helps self. So mm -hmm. with, that be, with that being said, you know, I, I think we've pretty much covered our topic. Um, I thank everyone for joining us. You know, if you've made it to the end, you know, you're definitely somebody who, you know, is interested in this topic. And feel free to check out other things that the Wisdom Factory has discussed. You know, we make podcasts like these all the time. We have poems. We have articles. Um, and if you enjoyed this, chances are you'll enjoy the other stuff that we do. So look at our blog. Look at our YouTube channel. Uh, we got a lot of cool stuff coming up for you, especially this coming semester. Um, and with that, that concludes our podcast. Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Hyun, for making the time to thank join us. Thank you so us. much for having me. Thank you. I and really enjoyed our dialogue, too. And, and thank you, Nick. I know for a, for a minute it seemed like you were not going to be able to come. So, you know, I appreciate that you were able to make this work. But, uh, yeah, Wisdom Factory out. Y'all have a wonderful day.